It really is a profound thing. I was thinking earlier as we were singing our first song that here we are, uh, mostly if not entirely a Gentile group of people singing Hebrew words gathered together here, uh, this ancient language of this Semitic people, and here we are singing hallelujah to our God. You know, we take so many of these things for granted and just reminds us that we have been grafted in to God's people, Israel, as uh, we look back over biblical history and we see God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to think that we who were not a people, who were far off uh, from God, have been brought near through the Messiah, through the Jewish Messiah. So we praise God this morning that he has grafted us in, that he has made us a part of his people, that we were a wild olive shoot, but God has grafted us into his olive tree. What a blessing and something to be truly grateful for. If you would go with me in your Bibles to Exodus 29, verses 29 to 46, that's where we'll be this morning. Exodus 29, verses 29 to 46. Our time in the book of Exodus has brought us to the tabernacle passages in the latter part of the book. So uh, we are nearing, in some ways, the end of the book. We're at the back end, and uh, here we are in these large sections regarding the tabernacle. And as I've said before, we get first this large chunk uh, where God gives Moses a description of what is to be done. And then we'll get the golden calf incident. And then after that, uh, we will get the the actual carrying out of the work that God had commanded Moses. So really, uh, the the rest of Exodus from this point forward and from what we've been covering uh, is dedicated to this theme of the tabernacle. We spent a little while uh, in the legal material following the Ten Commandments, and now we are looking at the tabernacle. So one of the things I love about Exodus is uh, the diversity of texts within this book. You get uh, these amazing stories of God's power and and glory and salvation, uh, and then you get uh, all of this legal material that you work through and all of the ethical implications for us as we think about that and, and, and the way in which that drives us to Christ. And then, of course, the tabernacle and all the ways that drives us to Christ. So whether it's uh, Yeshua, God saves, and we see that uh, early on at the uh, crossing of uh, the Red Sea, or whether it is the law of God being fulfilled in the righteous Christ or the tabernacle, And it's high priest. Everywhere we look, we see the Lord Jesus Christ. And I I think it just reminds us that all throughout the Bible, all throughout the Old Testament, it is about Christ. And after Jesus was raised on the road to Emmaus, he tells those two followers, he reminds them that that all that was written in the Old Testament was about him. And he begins to elucidate that. And so I hope for you as we've been going through Exodus and as we've been going through the tabernacle that Christ and his glory, that the person and work of Christ has stayed very much in view in your own mind. Recently, our focus as we've been looking at the tabernacle has been on those who work or serve in the tabernacle, specifically the priests and especially the high priest. So uh, the whole priesthood is considered, but the, the spotlight really is falling on this individual, this office of high priest. The title for the sermon this morning is Setting Apart the Priests, part two. So we're in a part two today. Last week we started looking at the anointing, ordination, and consecration of the priests in chapter 29. This whole chapter is the detailed description of what was summarized in chapter 28, verse 41. So we got that one verse there as a summary of everything that we're reading in chapter 29. So 28, 41 says this, And you shall put them, that is the garments, the holy garments, on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them, and ordain them, and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. So that is introduced, and then as we go through chapter 29, we get all of the details. 
Last week, we covered verses 1 to 28 of chapter 29, and we looked at two things just by way of review. We looked at presenting the servants in verses 1 to 9 and performing the sacrifices in verses 10 to 28. Aaron and his sons are brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting along with unleavened bread and one bull and two rams without blemish. And uh, Jen, let me get you to put that tabernacle picture up again just so we can be reminded of that. And so the tent of meeting is the, the tent structure there with two separate spaces or two rooms. And so these priests, Aaron and his sons, are brought to the entrance of the tent, not the entrance to the courtyard. They're already there, but they're brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting. That is the tent where God meets with his people. And they are brought there along with a basket of unleavened bread and one bull and two rams without blemish. And when they are brought there, they are washed, clothed in their priestly garments, and anointed with oil in their garments, as they will function as priests. Afterwards, three sacrifices are made, one animal for each sacrifice. Aaron and his sons place their hands upon the animal before it is killed, The animal is killed, the blood is applied, and the offering is made. So let me just remind you of three big themes that came out of what we looked at last week and that we're continuing to see and we will continue to see. The first is this idea of substitution. Uh, It is massive. Christ did not merely die for us as an example, though he was an example, Christ did not die simply to gain victory over spiritual powers in heavenly places, though he did that, Christus victor, Christ the victor. But most fundamentally, at the heart of our understanding of the cross, is that there was a substitution, that Christ died as the substitution. And this theme of substitution uh, becomes so clear for us as we see these priests place their hands upon the animal that is to be killed. They are conveying, they're transferring themselves onto this creature, which functions as a substitute dying in their place. And that's the second theme is death. Substitution, of course, with reference to death. Everywhere in this tabernacle section, everywhere when we discuss the priest, we are seeing the significance of death. Death was not God's intention for the world, as we see in Eden. There was no death. It's one of the reasons that I cannot embrace, many reasons I cannot embrace uh, a notion of theistic evolution, that uh, before Adam and Eve that there was predation and, and death and all of that. And that's not the picture we get at the beginning of Genesis. Death entered the world through the sin of Adam and Eve. And the picture of God making these skins to cover them, the first death implied after the fall. Death is a reality after the fall. Since human beings have sinned against God, death is a reality. And we see the Lord God dealing with death in the tabernacle sacrificial system. We see the penalty of sin is death. We see death all around us. We know People who have recently died. All of us is headed in that direction. The Bible holds out for us, and specifically the tabernacle passages hold out for us the reality of death. And let me just say to you this morning, you may be numbing yourself on things that cause you to forget about death. And I would encourage you, talk to your children about death. Because the only way we're ever going to see the gospel, the only way we're ever going to want the gospel, desire the gospel, see the glory of the gospel, and the accomplishments of the gospel, is if we understand the reality and the horror of death. It is not the way it ought to be. And you may be here this morning, and you're not a believer, and your life's going great. You don't don't see death 
anywhere. It's just all vitality. It's all life. It's all vibrancy. You feel good. In your mind, you look good. Everything's going great. It is truly a deception. If you do not know God, you are spiritually dead, and that is showing up in ways maybe even right now you cannot see in your body, and it will ultimately result in physical death and eternal separation from God in hell. We are meant to see the weightiness and significance of death and therefore the need for substitution as we look at these priests. Another big theme that we're seeing is this idea of purification, that God purifies his people. And as we think about the gospel, we see purification in two respects. We see the the need to be purified before God in terms of guilt. This is more forensic. All of these ceremonies, all of these things that uh, the high priest and the priest were doing uh, had no guarantee that they were doing anything on the inside of the person. But there was the need for them to be purified, purged of guilt, at the very least ceremonially, before the holy God. But what we recognize is that this purification must penetrate to the heart. That the cleansing as they come before the tent of meeting is meant to picture the heart. And we think about this in the gospel that we are purified before the face of God in justification. As we are made right or declared right before God by faith. We are reckoned by God though we are not righteous. We are still sinful. We are reckoned righteous before God purged before his face, purified before his face through the blood of Christ on our behalf. But then we also recognize that we are increasingly purified through sanctification as we are purged of actual sin daily, day in and day out, purified in how we walk before the Lord. Our standing is changed and our walking is changed as the Lord justifies and sanctifies. And I would submit to you that all of those glorious riches are present right here as we go through the tabernacle, as we look at the priest. All of these themes that are so precious to us as Christians are right here in these verses, in these paragraphs, on these pages. It is at the end of the third sacrifice... Remember, there are three sacrifices we read about last week. It is at the end of the third sacrifice, the ram of ordination, where we come in today. So if you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word together. So what I want to do this morning, we've got to do it is I want to read all of chapter 29. Because I want you to see, I, want, I, want, I hear the rejoicing. I hear the rejoicing. I want to read all of, all of there you go, uh, all of 29, because we need to get the whole picture in view. So, so this is not the moment to check out. Uh, this is the moment to really check in. Uh, this is so much weightier than anything I'm going to say. This is the word of God. Uh, All else is trying to explain, trying to explain God's word. But this is God's word. So listen to how it moves from verses 1 to 28 into our passage for today, which is verse 29 and following. This is the word of God. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, And unleavened bread, unleavened cakes, mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers, smeared with oil. You shall make them a fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket, and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the aphod and the aphod and the breastpiece. And gird him with the skillfully woven band of the aphod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. 
You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Verse 10. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar, and you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails, and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, and burn them on the altar, but the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn, or dung or intestines, what that could be, you shall burn with fire outside the camp, it is a sin offering." Verse 15, then you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram and shall take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head. And burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. You see the pattern there with each of these three sacrifices. And you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you, shall, then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Verse 22, you shall also take the fat from the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and the right thigh for it is a ram of ordination. And one loaf of bread and one cake of bread made with oil. And one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. You shall put all these on the palms of Aaron and on the palms of his sons. And wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering. As a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved and the thigh of the priest's portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination. From what was Aaron's and his sons, it shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place shall wear them seven days. You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration, but an outsider shall not eat of them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh for the ordination or of the bread remain until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons, according to all that I have commanded you, through seven days shall you ordain them. And every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old day by day regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight. 
and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh, or the Lord their God. You can go ahead and be seated. It really is striking how much material is here. And it just tells us the significance with which God took these ceremonies. The significance of what is being conveyed and symbolized, the deep realities and truths that are present in these ceremonies. It also reminds us of the extent to which God desired to dwell with his people. God wanted his people to dwell with him. So let's pray and ask for his grace. Father, as we come to your word, we pray that your spirit would penetrate our hearts with it. We thank you that you've brought us here this morning to sing your praises and to pray to you collectively, Lord, to partake of the Lord's Supper and to be instructed from your word. There are so many blessings here for us, God, and I pray that none of us would take these things for granted, Lord, but that we would be grateful to you and that we would give our minds and our hearts and our bodies to this Lord's day, to this corporate worship. Father, how many things we give our minds and our hearts and our bodies to in a given week, Lord. How many trivial things. How many things uh, that are not weighty at all. But God, we pray that we would see the great weightiness of being here together as your people. And that we would praise you from the heart. Hearts devoted to you. Hearts attentive to your word. We ask for your grace now by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So two things will occupy our attention this morning. Completing the ordination and continuing the offerings. That's what we get in these verses. So completing the ordination, verses 29 to 37, and then continuing the offerings, verses 38 to 46. We'll talk about how these are linked together as we go through. So first, completing the ordination, verses 29 to 37. And as we take in these verses, we can divide them into two parts. So you could see these as subpoints as we look at this first point. Uh, so kids, if you're taking notes, you might want to get these. Uh, these two subpoints under this first point. First, the meal, and second, the week. As we see the completion of the ordination, we get the meal and the week. So let's look first at the meal. And for that, let's read again verses 31 to 34. You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration But an outsider shall not eat of them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh for the ordination or of the bread remain until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. The third sacrifice is called the ram of ordination. Remember, there are three sacrifices associated with the ordination of uh, the high priest and the other priest. And they are first the bull and then two rams. And the the third sacrifice or the second ram is called the ram of ordination or the ram of filling. As you think about their hands being filled. You may remember from last week that part of this sacrificial animal is placed in the palms of Aaron and his son's hands. So uh, Moses takes, Moses is doing this first Sacrifice, Obviously, for future high priests, the the priest would do this. But Moses is doing this first. uh, And he takes part of the ram of ordination, the ram of filling, and he fills the hands of Aaron and his sons. He puts parts of the ram in their palms. 
And it is a wave offering. And it's probably the case, as you think about a wave offering, it's not like this because then everything in their palms is going to fall out, fall down on the ground. But it is probably like this, a wave offering going forward and then going backwards. Some of the ram is given to the Lord as a burnt offering on the altar. And so that's the forward motion as it is offered up to the Lord or out to the Lord. But then some of it is received back by the priests as food, and and that is received back from the Lord. The people contributed this, as we read in the previous verses, and so it is offered to the Lord, and it is received back, at least part of that animal will be received back to be eaten by the priests. And we're told here that this portion is to be boiled within a holy place, that is, within the tabernacle court. We just saw the picture of that a moment ago. A moment ago. So somewhere within that tabernacle court, it is to be, near the tent of meeting, it is to be boiled and then eaten along with the bread that was remaining in the basket. This is a holy meal. And that means that this is, a, this is food, this is a meal that is to be set apart for these set-apart men. For Aaron and his sons. It is not to be eaten by anyone else. And its holiness is highlighted by the fact that it is not to be used as leftovers for the next day. If any remains until the morning, it must be burned. So this is not one of those things where you fill up on it and then you say, you know, I'm going I'm to put this little bit of meat aside for tomorrow. You wrap it up. You think I'll have this for lunch tomorrow. You know, that after Thanksgiving, you eat on that for like 12 days. Not really, but, you know, it feels like that. Uh, it's not one of those things where you hold it until the next day as leftovers, but instead, if any remains until the morning, so they don't have to stuff themselves and eat all of it, even if they can't, uh, but whatever does remain is to be burned up. Now, I want you to notice two things about this meal that help to bring out its significance. Two things that I think we, we can't miss here. First, It is to be eaten, as verse 32 says, in the entrance of the tent of meeting. That's important, where it is to be eaten. It is to be eaten in the entrance of the tent of meeting. In other words, that is another way of saying it is to be eaten before Yahweh. It is to be eaten before the Lord. And it brings us back to Exodus chapter 24, verse 11. You'll remember that Aaron and Nadab and Abihu went up with 70 of the elders. They went partway up Mount Sinai, and there with Moses, they had a meal. They saw God, and as we talked about there, there's mystery there. As we think about what it is that they saw, we know they saw a pavement, and that was the focus. So God displayed his glory in this this beautiful sapphire pavement underneath his feet, they see God, they're, they're present with God, and they partake of this food. And what we read there is this, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Now, it is one thing to be in the presence of God and not be struck down. It is another thing to, as it were, pull up a chair Pour a drink, get your fork, and start eating with the Lord. I mean, this is a picture of intimacy. This is a picture of fellowship, a picture of being with the Lord. It is a picture of acceptance, reconciliation, communion with God through the priesthood and the sacrificial system. And so that's what we're meant to understand by that, is that as these priests are there in the tent of meeting, they are eating before the Lord. They are eating with the Lord. They are in communication with God. They are in relationship with God. And as representatives of the people, All of the Israelites are therefore in relationship with their God. You may remember when we went through Romans, we came to Romans chapter 9, verse 4. As Paul is uh, discussing his grief over the fact that Israel, the, the Jewish people, largely had not trusted in the Christ 
And the pride, as he gets to the end of Romans 11, the pride that then uh, could take root in the hearts of the Gentile believers as they think about the Israelites, the Jewish people, largely rejecting their Messiah. And so Paul describes God's purposes. He talks about Israel's rejection of the Christ on two levels, the level of God's electing purposes and the level of Israel's rejection, the level of divine sovereignty and human responsibility as he goes through Romans 9 through 11. But in verse 4, he discusses who these people are. And he says they are Israelites. Or a better way to say that is, they are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. In other words, what Paul is saying there is these are all the gifts, all the blessings that God has heaped upon the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish people, all the the gifts that God has heaped up on Israel. And one of those gifts is worship. And we are seeing that here as we think about the tabernacle and the priest. We, we may tend on this side of the cross to look back and see all of this sacrificial system as, as something negative in nature. But it, wouldn't, it was not understood that way by the Israelites. It was a gift. It was a blessing to them. God had not yet sent his Christ. The fullness of time had not yet come. God's progression of the history of salvation was moving. And at that point, what a grace. It was to the Israelites that God gave them this sacrificial worship. And as we think about what's going on today with, uh, in Israel, it, it just reminds us that God's purposes. I, I heard, uh, and I know people debate the significance of the modern state of Israel in relation to uh, the promises of prophecy in the Old Testament. But I once heard John MacArthur say, and I, I loved it, he said, how many of the, those nations that we read about in the Old Testament, like the Hivites and the Hittites, actually have a nation today? And for those who read the Bible, how amazing is it that there is actually a constituted Jewish state For those who read the promises of the prophets, for those who read God's promises that he would bring his people back and restore his people. And for those who read something uh, like Paul says in Romans 11, that all Israel will be saved when the fullness of the Gentiles come in. How can we not see the significance of what the Lord has done? And so we pray for Israel We pray for the modern state of Israel. We pray for Jewish people wherever they may be found. We pray that they would turn to Mashiach, their Christ. But that is the first thing we need to see as these priests are at the entrance of the tent of meeting. They are before the Lord. This worship is a blessing. It is a gift as they are in communion with God. But second, it is to be eaten as verse 33 says, as those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration. So they are to eat the things with which atonement was made. In other words, Aaron and his sons are receiving into their very own bodies, they are receiving into themselves the very means of their atonement. I think it is a concrete realization that they have been purified before the Lord. It's not one of those things where God just tells them, do this and you will be purified, but they actually, as it were, they taste their purification. They swallow their purification. They digest and maybe even burp up their purification. They are experiencing it in in a visceral way in their bodies. This is a very concrete realization that God has purified them, that he is meeting with them, that he has covenanted with them, and that he is accepting all that the sacrificial system means and offers. We also see here another pointer to substitution as they partake of the animal and receive it into themselves. I think we also have here a hint at the Lord's Supper. Consider the words of Jesus. In John chapter 6, as he talks about the gospel, as he talks about 
who he is and why he has come. And we think about these words and the relationship that they have to the Lord's Supper. Listen to what Jesus says in John 6, verses 53 to 55. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And of course, the people are like, what? Some of the people, they just, it says they just stop following him. And Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Jesus is, in a sense, purging the crowd of the false followers with this language, this very shocking language. You have to eat me and drink me in order to have eternal life. Now we know, of course, that we are not literally physically eating Christ when we partake of the Lord's Supper, but it is symbolic of our taking in of his body and our taking in of his blood. And in that sense, we have a little pointer to that as we consider the taking in of the sacrifice here by the high priest and his sons. So we've looked at the meal That completes the ordination ceremony. But now let's look at the week. At the week. For that, let's look at verses 29 to 30 and 35 to 37. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest, who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place, shall wear them seven days. And then drop down to verses 35 to 37. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons, according to all that I have commanded you, through seven days shall shall you ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy." Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Here we learn, and we haven't come across this yet. Here we learn that this whole process actually lasts seven days. In other words, everything that we have read up to this point is a repeated event. Now, it is already elaborate enough, we might be thinking. I mean, this is incredible. Like, they come forward, they wash, they wear these, this clothing, and they offer a bull. These are expensive animals. A bull, and then, and then a ram, and then another ram. And then we're told when we get to the end of the passage, oh, no, no, that's just one day. That has to be done seven days. Seven days. Times when future high priests are ordained, the descendants of Aaron are to wear the holy high priestly garments for seven days. This ordination is first carried out in Leviticus 8, and there we read this in verses 33 to 36. So, right now we're getting the description. What we're reading about actually happens in Leviticus 8. And let me read to you from part of that chapter, verses 33 to 36. So this is after the first portion has been carried out, after the the whole day worth of uh, ceremony, and you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed. For it will take seven days to ordain you. Not six, not six and a half. You can't cut this off at any point. It will take seven days. Moses talking to Aaron and his sons. It will take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, in other words, everything you've seen us do today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days. They are camped out there at the entrance (coughs) for an entire week performing what the Lord has charged so that you do not die. For so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. Once again, we see this theme of obedience, which is massive in Scripture. Uh, Moses says, look, this is what God told me to do. 
and uh, this is what you need to do. And then Aaron and his son say, okay, Moses, God has told you and you've told us, now we are going to obey. So this theme of doing precisely what God has said. So here in Exodus 29, we get a repeat of verses 10 to 14 with this focus on the bull. The bull is mentioned. This is the sin offering that is also used to purify the altar by placing blood on the horns of the altar and pouring out blood at the base of the altar. Now, as you think about the altar being consecrated or purified, it's a little strange to us. Uh, We understand the moral evil that comes out of a human being. Uh, We understand the need for us to have atonement, uh, right? So we need to be covered, we need to be washed, we need to be purified before God so that we can have reconciliation with him. But why does the altar, this bronze altar, need to be purified? What is the point? Well, there's two things going on here. First, there is this movement from common to holy. This is no longer just common bronze. This is no longer just a common space. This is to be a holy space. This is holy bronze. But even more than that, it is about movement from defiled to pure. Yes, it is true that the altar never sinned against anybody. But every person who made that altar, who hammered out that altar, constructing it, every person who moved that altar to put it where it needed to be, and every priest who would minister at that altar was, in fact, a sinner. And so they defiled the altar with their Sin. And therefore, there is the need to make purification. Before we move on to our next point, we need to consider the question why seven days? Now, maybe you didn't think about this, but I I think it is important for us to at least uh, consider why is it that the Lord commands that this is to be done for seven days? Well, we're not told explicitly, He doesn't say seven days because dot, dot, dot. It's just given to us seven days. Why one week? Well, the short answer is that seven throughout Scripture is the number of completeness. This is to be a complete purification. That is the imagery. That is what needs to be conveyed. This is to be a complete purification. But it points to two things, two things that we need to consider for, our own, for ourselves this morning. First... It points to the extent of sin and the extent of God's holiness. So it takes a full week. A full week is needed to deal with human sin. A full week is needed to set something apart unto the holy God. And so by the time you get to the third day, it's just, it's a a ton of work. A ton of animals already And as you move your way towards the seventh day, perhaps by the sixth day, you are beginning to feel the weight of human sin and of divine holiness. So we read in Leviticus 8 that they must remain there for seven days so that they do not die. God has ordained that it needs to take an entire week. In other words, there needs to be complete dealing with sin and complete appeasement of God's holiness. A second reason I think that it is seven days is that it points back to creation. The creation week. Seven days. Six days, and then on the seventh day, God rested. It points us back to perfection, back to Eden, back to relationship with God. And in doing so, it points forward to eternal rest and life with God. Remember, all along as we've looked at the tabernacle system, as we've looked at the tabernacle and the sacrificial system, we see this constant theme of Eden, returning to Eden. And so here, even here in the seven-day ordination, we are brought back to creation, brought back to the purpose of the tabernacle, that God's people would know him, that God would dwell among 
his people. So that's our first point, completing the ordination. Now we come to continuing the offering. So for that, look with me in verses 38 to 46 as we finish up this morning. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil, and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. These sweet Precious words of comfort for God's people. At this point, we have now moved beyond the topic of ordination. So we're now leaned into a different topic. I didn't want to put this off as a separate sermon because we see the ordination of the priests mentioned. It's meant to be taken with what we've read so far. Here we are looking at the ongoing activity of these ordained and consecrated priests. So up to this point, they have been anointed, they have been ordained, they have been consecrated, and now we're leaning into what it is that these guys are going to be doing, what these priests are going to be serving with or in what way they will be serving. The sacrifices of their ordination function as the entryway into the entire sacrificial system. And here the focus is on the daily sacrifices, the regular repeated sacrifices at morning and at twilight, every single day. And in fact, we're told elsewhere that the evening sacrifice is meant to stay burning all through the night. So the fires on the altar are always burning. There is always sacrificial burning going on at this bronze altar. Every single day, two lambs are to be slaughtered and burned up on the altar. Each lamb is offered along with a grain offering and a drink offering. As it pictures an entire meal, it symbolizes fellowship with God. So you you have the meat, you have the grain, you have the drink offering. The picture is one, once again, as we've seen before, of fellowship with God, of communion with Yahweh. And in verse 41, it says that it is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It is as though they are making Yahweh's plate. Uh, They are giving Yahweh the meat. They are giving Yahweh the grain. They are pouring Yahweh's drink. It is a picture, not because God, not because Yahweh, like the other ancient gods, needs this to continue in his immortality or anything silly like that, but because it is meant to convey the truth that God is present, that God loves his people, and he is dining, as it were, continually, day and night, with his people. And, I mean, in the new covenant with the spirit dwelling within us, how amazing is that for us as Christians to consider that God is always dining with us. He's always there present. How often we forget his presence. How often we act as though he is far away. But he's not. Because that pleasing aroma of Christ is always before his face. And those of us who are in Christ, always present with him. Every moment, in the good, in the bad, in the difficult, in the easy, in moments of plenty. Paul talks about that in Philippians 4. 
Abundance and plenty, sometimes we feel that. And sometimes we feel the exact opposite. And in both cases, the Lord is present. And here we read that as it is a burnt, as it is a burnt offering, it is burnt up entirely, it symbolizes the need for atonement. Each animal is killed and entirely consumed in place of the Israelites. Once again, the seriousness of sin, the seriousness of substitution, the seriousness of death, the need for death with sin, the penalty of sin is death. Morning and evening fires continually burning. The Israelites are never to forget. Verse 42 explains the rationale. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. God intends to dwell with his people. God intends to meet with his people, but this cannot be without sacrifice. So much uh, evangelical piety uh, seems to be divorced. As, as you read certain books and you listen to certain talks, I won't even dignify them with the name sermon, as you hear these things and listen to these things, uh, one of the issues, one of the things that we constantly see is that there really is no emphasis on the weightier matters of the gospel. It's all very experiential. It's all very just sort of fluffy. And it's about me and my own sort of enjoyment of God and my own, my own sort of walk through life with God with me. There, there's no deep understanding of sin and of death and of Christ's victory and Christ's substitution and what it means that Christ intercedes for us now. And one of the things we see here is that where there is no sacrifice, there is no fellowship. Someone said to me a while back, you know, we were talking about Mormons, and they said, uh, well, Mormons, they have a personal relationship with Jesus too. And I said, well, I don't know what that means. I don't know what it means when they say that they have a personal relationship with Jesus. But what I know is that the Jesus they worship is not the G, or the Jesus they know is not the Jesus of this Bible. The Jesus who is the God man who sacrificed himself for our sins. There is no relating to God. None of us in this room could come to God with a single word, could pray to God a single syllable were it not for Christ's sacrifice. We see that in every aspect of the tabernacle structure. We see that in the fact that as soon as the Israelites enter into the, the tabernacle court, there's the altar. They have to pass by the altar before they can ever even come to the tent of meeting. And constantly, the fires, as I said before, of the altar are burning Sin must be dealt with to approach God. Let me say this to you this morning. Unless Christ is your sacrifice, you do not know God. Whatever thoughts or conceptions or feelings or flutteries or whatever you have in your mind or in your heart, unless Christ stands for you as intercessor at the right hand of God, unless you have explicitly trusted in what he did at the cross, unless you have repented of your sins and bowed to Jesus as Lord, there is no sacrifice for you and no relationship whatsoever with God. It comes only through sacrifice. Through sacrifice, God dwells with his people. Through the sacrifice of Christ, God dwells with his people. As we read in verses 42 to 46, God will meet with his people there and he will sanctify it by his very own glorious presence. And through this place of meeting, through this sacrificial system, through this priesthood, God will be present with them as their God. As we read in verses 45 to 46, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their 
God. That's where all of this has been headed. And here's the thing you need to see. Those verses are great. Those verses, some people say, those verses will preach. But here's the thing we need to see. You cannot understand those verses without seeing all the context that's led up to them. You can't feel the weight of those wonderful verses about God and his love and his presence and all of that until we see the way in which that has come forth in the text through all this tabernacle structure, through all the, this priest, the priestly garments and, and the way the priests are to function. Then you come to understand that. And I think there is a similar thing going on, as we mentioned earlier, with Romans 9 through 11. You walk through Romans 9 and 10 and 11, and you understand God's plan and redemptive history with Israel and the Gentiles. And then you come to the end of Romans 11, and you get to another preachable passage, right, with all that praise. And so the temptation might be in our devotional lives to just go there. That's what I need to read. That's my nugget for today, the end of Romans 11. But how do we understand Romans 11, the very end. How do we understand that doxological glory without all the rationale and the explanation that precedes it? And the same is true here. We come to these words with all the previous 44 verses and beyond, filling our minds with an understanding of what it means for God to dwell with his people. I want to highlight two implications for us as we close this morning. First, we see the insufficiency of these sacrifices. How often do they have to be made? Twice a day. Every single day. Well, hold on a second. Uh, isn't it efficacious? Doesn't it do anything? Twelve hours. Then you got to do it again. Over and over and over again. And that, of course, prepares the Israelites for the true sacrifice. It prepares the Israelites for the fulfillment of all of these lambs. As we read in Hebrews 10, 11 to 14, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, one sacrifice, one time. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, listen to this language, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So we've talked about purification. We've talked about consecration. And here we see that all of that purifying we come here this morning stained with sin. And all of that purifying and all of that consecrating happened in that once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. So what do we do this morning with our sin? We confess our sins, for he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We don't stand and just walk around with the guilt of our sins, nor do we continue in our sins. We confess our sins to Christ and we press on in the Christian life. So whatever baggage you have this morning, if you are in Christ, confess your sins, turn from your sins, and start anew in the Lord through his one perfect Sacrifice. A second implication is we see here the regularity of worship. Notice this whole twice daily thing. God's people are quick to forget and quick to stray, so there is the need for regularity, regular, frequent worship before Him. And I think there's just a principle here of regularity. Now we understand what's going on with the purification and the consecration and the atonement and all of that. But there's also, I think, an implication for us as we think about the Christian life today. We're not going to take sacrifices anywhere. We're not going to a tabernacle place. But what it does remind us of is the fact that we need to constantly, regularly, frequently go before our God. How do we possibly think that we can live this Christian life and fight Satan and, and kill sin and stay encouraged and comforted in the gospel and stay joyful and refrain from worry and impure thoughts and all how how do we possibly think that we could do that without regularly going to God in prayer and scripture reading 
We can't. So listen, before you just pull out all your hair and fall on your face in despair, try that. Start going to God's word regularly, morning and evening. Use that pattern. Use Daniel's pattern three times a day. Go to the Lord frequently. Seek his face. Pray. Read his word. In private, regular worship. As a family, regular worship. And as a church, regular worship. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this one sacrifice for sin. Our Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary. We thank you, Father, for what he purchased for us. We thank you for how he has purified us before your face. We thank you, Lord, that through him, uh, our worship to you, though so imperfect, is a pleasing aroma through Christ, who is a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Lord, we praise you for Jesus, and we pray that we would truly live in Jesus, and not a Jesus of our own imagination, not a Jesus uh, that allows us to do whatever we please, but the biblical Jesus. We know that in no other name is there salvation besides this Jesus. And we praise you for him, Lord, and we pray that our hearts would be devoted to him, that we would be true followers of this high priest. It's in his name we pray.